0: Well, aside from anointed preaching, we've got some tremendous anointed worship. Can we just one time again, I just want to make sure I hear your voices out there, because I don't know if we have enough light in the room. Can we say praise God? Praise God. There it is. Amen. Amen. He is so faithful to us. He is so faithful to us. I want to share with you, I have this, as I had shared with you before, I feel like God is calling us as a congregation to walk more closely to Him in His Word. And I don't know what that's going to look like here in the next few weeks, months, and going on ahead, but I want to stress the importance of God's Word in our life. You know, there's numerous people, and even Christians, that are straying from the Word of God, just straying from it. And part of that stray is is only listening or a majority listening to what somebody else has to say about it. But Jesus with Peter had told him at one point, he said, "Who do who do men say that I am?" And Peter said, "You're the son of. They say that you're Elijah or John the Baptist, but who do you say that I am?" And Peter said, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Peter said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And that's what I vision. I think it's God's vision in His heart over us. And I'm not saying that we don't have a relationship to the Word of God. But I don't think any of us here, including myself, say I've got it as as much as I want it to be. You know, there's been a pastor, a preacher this last few weeks, has been preaching about a few things. And he gave a few uh, details in his sermon about how many chapters there are in the Bible, and about how, uh, how many chapters you'd have to read in order to finish it in six months. And His Word has been a personal conviction to my heart. Because I keep thinking about that. And here's the thing I want to say. I want to say what makes me think the most is when time is over, when we've breathed our last breath and we get to step out of this body into eternity And we get to see God face to face. What is it that we will have looked back on our life and wished we had done differently? See, because in that moment, when you see it in all of its fullness, when you get to see God in all of His glory, there won't be time to go back and make the changes. Today is the moment we get to make those changes. You may have wished then that you had been more into the Word of God and didn't. And think to yourself, why didn't I spend more time in the Scripture, in the Word of God? I'm not so sure that we might not find out some of the promises missed because they didn't get prayed over. Some of the things that God intended for us if we had just been willing to take in more. See, I don't think the issue is God's willingness to give. I think it's in our ability to receive. It's the state of our minds. It's the attitude of our hearts as God is trying to make Himself real to us. And it's as we become more and more vulnerable, we become more and more in sync and in the sense of dependency on the Lord, that you become in a state of mind as it is a way for God to water and grow Himself within you. And so I think the most important thing within that, one of the most important things is His Word. I, I just can't stress that enough. So let's look here at Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Give me an amen when you get there. Wow, you guys are already there. Amen. Okay, so we're going to say it here. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Inspired here to Timothy is the words and the importance of us to be somebody, a worker who can rightly divide the word of truth. Meaning this, that if, in a sense, if you don't know how to divide it, then you're not ready to receive it from anybody else. We need to take time to let the Lord help us get there. I'm going to do my very best to give some helps along the way. Some of you probably already used this, and I pray that's the case. But if not, then we're going to go there together. And if if we're getting there, let's keep going there. That's all I can say. So... I want to look at another verse in the Bible, Matthew chapter 18, verse 8 through 9. And so we're just going to deal with the Bible in context. And I'm going to read this and then I want to pray. Are you there? Okay, I still hear pages turning. Not so quick on this one here. Quick on the draw of the first one, but second one, it's a little different. Okay. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into hell fire. Hmm. Right? Have you seen anybody ever practice this? Is anybody here? I think that might help us in the context piece of it. what I want to do is I picked a scripture that I think is pretty meaty because I want to focus on how do you glean the context. And context is gleaned when we read the whole chapter, sometimes a chapter before, a chapter afterwards, but we get more the context of what he's talking about. Now, at face value, it looks like Jesus, his context, or his main point or focus is simply what to do about sin or when you have an issue of sin in your life noticeably, you don't see a lot of details about this. Well, like, so if I offend one time, the first time I sin, you know, hands off, something comes off here, I begin to have to, to go through this. And the, the wonder is, is how deep an offense, if this were the case, and how many offenses before I get to the place where this is a need-be in my life. But he doesn't give any of those details. And I think the reason for it is, is because this isn't the context. One verse doesn't create a context for the entire chapter, and that's why this is so important. Because if we're going to read the Word of God, we're going to have to understand the Word of God as it's written. Now, this isn't something. It's not rocket science. So I'm not saying something that's like, okay, this is. You're going to have to go through a big ordeal, a lot of study books before you can get to the context here. One of the things I love about context is. That Even if you don't know the, the original languages and some of the original meanings to the words, and you don't have all of the study books that go along with the Bible, context is huge because most people can glean the ultimate meaning based on the context. So I want to look at the context here in, this ver- in these verses. And so I want you to look at uh, the first verse in chapter 18. First verse. And at that time, the disciples came to... I told you I was going to pray, didn't I? Let me do that here. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Lord, and I want to pray right now, Jesus, that You'd give us the power to discern the context throughout Scripture. Father, it will change not only what we believe many times when we've missed the mark. Lord, when there's errors involved. Lord, this one key piece can drive deception out of the heart and bring us right where You want us to be. And I don't want to miss, Lord, those for myself, and I don't want anybody in this place to take something and miss the very Word that God had for them in it. Lord, You have a Word for us. And Lord, as we become students of Your Word and we become really ardent about living this way, I want to pray that, God, that You said in Your Word, we shall know the truth and the truth shall set us free. Lord, there's an ability to be able to share the Word of God when we know it and we know what it means. Lord, I pray right here in this place that You would deposit and baptize and pour out a discernment in us and an ability to comprehend and be faithful to the very things that You've said. Lord, we don't want anything that You have said to be put out of its real context. Lord, we want to cherish every bit of Your Word And I want to pray today, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts in an amazing way, Lord, and bring us to the next level of our time spent with you in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse one, and at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, And said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will in no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's our context? The context is that the disciples are asking Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is answering that question. So our verse is in 8 and 9 have to do with Jesus answering the original question. Now, when I read that, I'm like, well, that doesn't quite make sense to me right off. So that's where you stop and meditate and think on, how does this, if your hand offend you, your foot causes you to sin, how does that imply or have anything to do with this question that the disciples have about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But the reason why we know that our verse, in verses 8 and 9, are not the context itself is because they're housed in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to get started on answering the question, really not finish answering the question, and then divert to something like this. So you'll see this kind of all throughout the Bible. You'll see things where you're like, oh, it looks like this is what they're talking about. And if you isolate one verse... You can create a whole new doctrine on an isolated verse out of the Bible and miss the whole of what God is actually saying in His Word. And I'm just trying to point this out because I think this happens a lot. I think this happens very commonly. And so, you know, I hear people say things that it's not even in the Bible, but they'll say it, God helps those who help themselves. Can you give me the chapter verse? Because I haven't found it yet. I even look in looking there, finding it in uh, my Bible, my audio Bible or my version, you version of the Bible, and I'm like, no, nope, not showing up. So it's not there in any version. So people oftentimes hear something repeated, and they actually believe it to be true. And then what we haven't done, so I remember a man one time in a church that we had gone to, we had preached over and over again. I don't know if you'd ever heard this, but that Noah preached for 120 years. I had heard that preached so many times. He preached righteousness 120 years, and some man stood up and he said, the Bible doesn't say that. No, uh nuh No, he preached for 120. Let me go look in. I know I've... And I went and looked, and it doesn't say 120 years. He says, actually, if you follow kind of the, the timeline that the Bible gives, you're closer to 100 years than you are 120. I was like, I can't believe... I I got sucked into that one. So that's why this is essentially really important, because reading it within its context is what we would do for anything that we want real clarity on. It doesn't matter what book, but especially a book that we hold to have the dynamic of eternal life and the importance of it in it. So context is that Jesus is answering a question of who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what we see here, let me read these other verses coming into it. And it said, verse 3, and he said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you shall in no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So I would tie this verse in simply saying that Jesus is simply saying, The greatest in the kingdom have something big to do with the least in the kingdom, or the most humble. So Jesus is actually starting with a point of humility to answer their question. Interestingly, he doesn't talk about them being great or mighty or having a seat next to him in the heavenlies, any of that. He's talking about unless you become his little children and you become humble like a child, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't even make it, much less, let's let's not talk about who's going to be greatest. Let's talk about just the entry level in making it into the kingdom of God. Entry level humility. Oops, didn't make that. Then what's the rest of it matter? Right? Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's remarkable. Because Jesus taught this by his own example. Jesus went about doing good and healing diseases. Jesus went and served. He was there. And I think that just speaks highly of the very words that Jesus said that we will one day come in a judgment seat. And when we are, what we're going to be judged for is what we've done to the least of these. Our faith invited us into the humility of God. None of us are so great that our lives can't be put on. It's not that it's put on display, it's that we're hidden. You know, I was thinking about that as we were talking about our our, uh, prayer requests, that we have hidden tracks that leave impact in somebody's life. I'm not trying to be known. I'm not trying to be seen. I would rather you not know the good deeds done. And then somehow you found out, but I'm not trying to make that happen. But I want to leave an eternal impact and nobody know about it. To some degree, I think that's the heart of Christ. God says He's looking at whatever's done in secret. Hallelujah. Whatever's done in secret will be manifest in the open. God will reward openly. That's a beautiful thought because so many of us feel like in our world points at what you want to do is you want to get on America's uh, Got Talent, and you want that talent to be known abroad, and then you want to become famous, and then you want, what? I don't know what all is attached to that, do you? But once it's all said and done, that's the big piece. That's what we really want is somehow to leave a name in the world. And Jesus is saying the opposite. Don't leave a name in the world. Leave my name in the world. Just leave my name in the world. So verse 5, whoever receives one of these little, this little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now we go back to 8 and 9. If your hand or or foot causes you to sin, Cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into, li- into life, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. So what I see here is that in throughout the entirety here, Jesus is showing a number of things connected to as a context. All these verses speak on, here's one of them. Jesus is showing that greatness comes from humility. Here now and into eternity, Jesus is showing that sinning against others is an opposition to humility and ultimately an antagonistic to greatness. So, when we want to buckle down and find greatness, we run toward humility. And so, Jesus is saying, in order to answer your question, what I'm doing, and we do this sometimes to answer a question, we give kind of an opposite end to the view so that you'll understand kind of the completeness of the idea. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus is showing that the greatness in the kingdom of God, or the greatest in the kingdom of God, are not characterized by unresolved and continued offenses. So if we look at the pattern of our life and we see the same sins over and over again, we see the same brokenness in relationships because we keep sowing into that brokenness. Anger, frustration, disappointment. And we see that keep happening, and yet we know the Lord is calling us away from that, and yet we're still in it. We're indulging the the opposition to greatness. And so God's calling us out of that. And then lastly here, there's a hardness. So I see in this, when Jesus gives the verses 8 and 9, what He's showing is there's And how would I say this? This is how I would contextually. So this is how I would verbalize a contextual. Based on the context, this is what I would, or how I would interpret verses 8 and 9. Because it has to somehow go back to Jesus answering the original question. And this is how I would say it. So something of this idea. That there is a hardness, or there can be, that exists in those who persist in known areas of sin that is so determined that unless those parts of their bodies were removed, nothing could change the resolve towards sin. I think the bigger meaning here is this. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you deal with the issues of sin and disobedience to God in your life. You don't let it hang out there. You don't give time to it. And you, d- you deal with it. And there's this kind of violence that you do to yourself not a physical violence, but a spiritual violence of turning toward God and turning away from the things in your own heart. I love Paris Reedhead. He made this statement in one of his sermons. He said, conviction is agreeing with God against yourself. I know I'm wrong. You know, most of the time what we find is is when we're talking about areas of wrong in life, the first thing we do is we go to try and prove, not necessarily prove that we're right, we're just going to prove that we're more innocent than the other party. But when we finally come to the place, I'm wrong, I accept my fault, in the conviction of God, we're beginning the headway to humility. And we're actually dealing with sin in our life. Now, why I don't think that Jesus is speaking specifically about cutting off a hand or a foot, as it were, this is something that we would instruct you to do, is because I don't see any other instruction about that, Within the Bible, I don't see anybody practicing it or putting it in. I don't see context for it in any other way. So here's the other piece of the context of Scripture. Interpret that Scripture, not just with the verses that you've read, but take the rest of the Bible into mind. So I'm going to take a few of these things because I think it's really important when we just look at here's the context. But how did we get to the context? How do we get to the context? And here's a few things I think we can do. Um, Well, let me share this with you first because I think this is important. Here's some meanings that can come out of this verse that when we're not taking it in context. This is just me saying I think these are things that people could come to a conclusion of. You could name a lot more, but here's some that were on my mind. A literal self-maiming alone could change my heart of sin That Jesus was really commanding this sort of action. So somehow, by maiming myself, then that could actually deal with the heart of sin. The real problem of sin is it lies within. So we would begin to believe that if I could do this, that that would finish the job. Here's another one. The lame and maimed souls will be in heaven. Now, it depends on how you read that, but it says it's better to enter into life, lame or without. Do you really think that that's actually true? That Jesus, that when you see people in heaven, you'll see some of them missing certain body parts, of which we have no history, we have nobody that talks about that, we, nothing of the sort. Is that going to be the case? And yet Jesus commanded, either we've fallen far short of this one compared to all the others, or that's not what Jesus meant. And then here's another one. Jesus quickly stopped answering. So this is what I find interesting. We would say that Jesus just stopped answering, and this is how we would look at it the question asked, and went on to his own tangent. And so that doesn't apply to a specific, but that's how we would begin to look at it outside of its context. I think it's important to keep those things in mind. So when we come here to this, turn to Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Here's how we come to context, and it is, one, read the entire chapter. Number two, we're going to consider what the other verses in the Bible have to do with this. Now, as I was saying, this is why it's so important that you know your Bible. So I don't know how many of us have read our Bible all the way through, even once in our life. Amen. How many have read it? I remember we were in a, we were in a meeting last year with some pastors. Oh, man, this was so awesome. And they asked, you know, pastors, how many of you have read your Bible through the year? And then they wanted to know because there was kind of a, it's, a, it's a giveaway to them. They, they're asking well, twice, three times in the year. There was one of them that raised his hand, had read his Bible through four times in a year. That's every three months. That man is clearing through the Word of God. What a delight to see that day, and what an inspiration for the rest of the men of God in that room. You know, it's not a matter of. Oh, you got to read it all the way through quickly, but thoroughly, and let it in your life. That's the whole idea. Anyway, that was a side note, just to drink that one up if you want to. Acts 16.31. This is one thing we see in the Bible that will help us look at this passage, or at least one that came to my mind. And so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. So what we notice is that it, the instruction in, verses, in, in verse 31 there was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what we see in verses 8 and 9 is something that's a physically done, and in this, belief was a heart thing. And I think we'll understand. I think we get this piece of it. Why does Jesus start with the heart? Why is that so important? And this is the instruction given to those who are wanting to know how to be right with God, and how to undo the sin situation within their life. And the first thing, he says, is believe. It didn't say, you need to go do this or go do that. He said, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's so many other verses that are so important and essential to making sure the wholeness of the gospel is actually being relayed. But at least we know this is the other teachings of the Bible. And what I do is this. When I can intellectually say, I see places where I see conflict or I see contrast, something about these verses doesn't line up with this verse. And what I would say is I always look for to try, when I know of multiple verses in the Bible and I see what looks like a conflict, is try to harmonize the conflict by trying to figure out what's the middle ground that works for both verses coming into play here. So when we're talking about works compared to grace, and we see James compared to Paul, and a very different kind of an epistle. But when you read them, you realize that James and Paul were in harmony. But how? Well, you've got to read it thoroughly and understand we're getting a bigger context throughout the Bible. That's why when people don't really know their Bibles, when people don't really have a good firm standing, their mind doesn't naturally call to mind scriptures that they've already read that either um, harmonize or show the conflict in that thought so that they can start taking time to just really bring the Word of God together. That's why it's, it's really, really important that we know all the Bible, because otherwise it just goes south from there. I want to go to another verse, and that is in 1 Samuel 16:7, which I think complements the verse we just read. How many of you like what you're hearing? Okay, I've got to hear an amen. Okay, we've got, we got a good audience out there. Amen. Verse 16, 16, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Okay, we have here this, it says, But the Lord said, Samuel, do not look at the outward appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All of these are helping me look at how does this complement the very things that Jesus said. And what I'm looking at and examining is so much of, and the reason I'm bringing these out because when I read Jesus says, cut off your hand and feet, I'm in the back of my mind thinking, well, what about all the other verses that talk about the dealing of the heart? What about Jesus when he was talking to the Pharisees and he said to them, because they were outwardly trying to make themselves look clean and pure and holy, and he said, first clean the inside of the cup and then the outside shall be clean also. And then what we've noticed even in our own observation in humanity and of ourselves is simply this, that sometimes I put myself out there to look like, put on some kind of a form that I was really doing good, but I knew, I knew in my heart that that wasn't the real truth of what was going on. There was a manipulative thing there, or it was I wanted somebody to think something because I I was afraid of their judgment or how they would look at me, and so I put on a, I put on an act or an air of something that wasn't really true as it really exists in me. And so we've all been in those positions where we just felt like I kind of put on the performance and it just wasn't right and I, I'm not satisfied with that. So that's why these scriptures are ideal and important is because God sees it the exact same way. And the reason we have it in our hearts is because that's the way God instituted it. I don't start with, oh, make it look right, even if it's not right, and then hope that somehow along the way, That my heart fit the picture. Now, when I think of obedience, I think we need to talk about this because I think some acts of obedience come as a. This is, I'm drawing the line and then I'm moving to the heart part of this. So, what we don't know is, does the egg, does the chicken get uh, hatched? Is the chicken first or the egg come first? You know, those kinds of things. And we're not sure exactly. And I think there are times when until you step out, you'll discover, then my heart enjoins myself into the act of obedience. And there's other times when it's simply, I now see what God was saying to me, I see the truth, I heartfelt, commit myself to that, and then I step out. Sometimes the obedience precedes the feel of the heart or the sense of the commitment, but the heart follows in line with it. But one thing we can say is this, we know when the heart is not changed, when it's not altered then there's never an act of obedience or anything done rightly until the heart is changed. Never does God want us to say, well, don't do anything until you feel a change in the moment. But you're committing yourself as a willingness to change and seeing what God does. So in some senses, the attitude is the way we read our Bibles. But the reality is the heart has to change as a matter of righteousness in our lives. Because there will be no righteousness if my heart hasn't changed. As a matter of fact, if you look up the original of the word repent, and you look up the original on that in the Greek, it's a change of mind. So I love it when somebody has been changed and their life has been changed. because What they tell you is, I used to do this. I was such a wicked person. And because... Now I'm different, and they tell you about the history of that change and what it's done in their life. And now I'm a new person. I'm not living the same way, and I'm not wanting to go back to that. And what you notice is the way they talk to you. Now, I might not have known them previously and hear how they loved that thing, or they, they just thought that was what life was all about. But then when I hear them now, I get this feeling that you would have talked about this differently in your past. Like you would have, this would have been a big deal. You loved it. Now you abhor it. Couldn't even consider, wouldn't even want it under these conditions. So that's when the mind is so changed. And you try, just try to get somebody to change what they do and what they're. Just don't do that. Stop. Quit. Yeah, why do you keep going back to it? Because my mind is not changed. I still feel and sense. There's there's some pieces about it I don't like but still there's a drive in my my head that drives me back to it. And so that's kind of the heart change that has to come with repentance. And though I bestow so let's look at 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3. 1 Corinthians 13:3. So here's a scripture that I think applies to just the outward Let's go let's just do it outwardly and see if we get where we want to be first Corinthians thirteen verse three how many of you like the uh overhead with the notes on there? does that help you yeah, yeah. I especially for those of you taking notes right It's like I want to get that one down so here we have first Corinthians thirteen three and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. If I put myself and sacrifice all my physical capabilities, and yet I do not have love, it does not profit me anything. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to His disciples, those who were listening to Him, He told them, If you love Me, keep My commandments. He didn't say, keep My commandments and you'll love Me. He said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And as as our brother pointed out earlier today, was that when it's joined to God, that's what gives us the gift of going beyond the restraints of our natural human finite being and enjoins us to do it freely and easily. It's because of love. I love you, Lord, and that's how I transition from it being difficult to it being not only capable, but sometimes, and in many cases, easy. So then we have, I want to give this thought, I believe that the gospel does not start with an action, but with the heart and the mind toward God. And what I mean by that doesn't mean, again, as I was saying before, is not mean that we don't start by moving into action, but that weirdly the gospel hasn't had a transition point and a power point to change us until it's made its way into our heart. And that's why we see in Romans, he says that salvation comes When you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? That's where we see the salvation change. My heart is developed new, and that's where the newness of my life comes out of. So again, over and over again as we read throughout the Bible, just Scripture after Scripture, verse after verse, we see lots of verses talking about heart transformation, not outward maiming, as a way of dealing with sin. Lots of them. So when you come into those conflicts, sometimes you're like, I don't know really where to go with that. You you make a doctrine. A doctrine is established off of many verses, not a few. And so we do have places where we have difficult conflicts to work through when there's only two or three verses talking about that particular. But the truth is, we really want to establish something. We look at what the Bible says. Now, a lot of times people have an assumption of, well, I think this happened or this might have happened, does the Bible say so? Then don't go there. Somebody's like, well, I wonder about... And like, well, I don't have a Bible verse for that, so I can't tell you what you should be thinking on that. Let's go somewhere else where the Bible does talk. And you know what I've noticed most of the time? When somebody gives an intellectual argument for or against something that we believe, if if you just step outside of that argument for a moment, we'll find something far more fundamental... And necessary to talk about than that thing over there. And what I think is, is that mind, when we become guilty, it's generally, at least I've done this, my mind generates something that I don't have to worry about guilt over. I'll talk about that thing. But when it is something that I have to think about, then I start thinking differently of, and then it affects me differently. So that's why I usually try in conversation with people, of like, you know, this seems weird, but whatever we're talking about just doesn't feel like it's hitting the mark let's go where it's going to be more foundational to life. So whatsoever doesn't spring out of the heart is either hypocritical or pretentious. So you can never be be morally upright until the heart is made right. And though often hidden to our eyes, the motive of the heart makes our actions discoverable, of which only God has full scope of. So until we know really what's going on in the heart... We really have no real honest knowledge of what's go- what the motive of the heart is until that happens. And because God has full scope on that, we just never get out from under that until we surrender to the Lord. There's a few other verses that I want to just quickly go over. You'll look up on the screen. Go to uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 38 through 39. Since then Peter said to them, so, this is an instruction of what to do when it comes to sin. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. He calls them to repentance. This is when Jesus, this is what the disciples is calling them to, and they're asking, what do I need to do? I have great offenses in my life. And notice it did not say, you need to remove a few limbs, or whatever body parts have been offending you the most are the ones you need to deal with. It says, repent. Have a whole complete change in heart and mind toward it, and then turn away from it. Change the way you view it, and then turn away from it, and turn your heart toward God. And then also here in 1 John chapters. 1 8 through 10 chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say that we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us notice very clearly he he demonstrates what it is we need to do Now, the reason I'm bringing all these verses out is because I'm not trying to tell you how to deal with sin. I'm trying to, with all my heart, help us understand this is how we come to some conclusion as to what are contexts within the Bible. How do I interpret certain passages, especially difficult ones to understand? Well, these are the ways that we do it. We look at all the scriptures involved that have something to do with it. Not necessarily every single one, but enough of them that you know I'm safe in the view that I'm holding on this particular verse in the Bible. And then verses, I want to go to this in chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. And if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, my second way of bringing the verses that we had in Matthew 18, 8-9 would that Jesus wasn't talking about a physical mortification, but a spiritual mortification of the deeds of the body. Now, if you think about it like this, if I walk in the Spirit and live according to God in the Spirit, then I have power to be able to kill what I've been doing with my hands, with my eyes, with my life. And I never, I can keep my eyes and I can keep my hands, but I don't keep them in living the same way. I've lost them to sinful deeds. I've lost them to sinful living. But I've kept them for righteous living and holy living. Does that make sense? So I think Jesus, if that's He's talking about maiming, He's talking about it in the way that Romans is, that you are going to separate yourself from certain deeds and ways of life because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that's where greatness springs out of. See how we get back to that context again. Greatness comes out of this. My life is surrendered and I'm yielded to the Lord and His lordship of my life. And that's how I walk in greatness. And that's humility. Because real humility is this piece of self that says, I want to live my way and I want to do my thing and I want to chart my own course and get what I want in life. It just starts dying at the wayside. And now you're living. All I want is to live for Jesus. All I want to do is worship Him. Lord, I want to magnify You in all I do. Oops, I said the wrong thing. Jesus, I come to You. Oh, my brother, my sister, I'm sorry. I violate the very principle of my own heart, and that was to be humble and to love Jesus and show You that love. Would You please forgive me of what I just did? Got some amens out there? Yeah. Good. So I want, to, I want to give a few other things. Here's one other way that we can go to the... There's more, but I'm just going to cover these. Quickly, I want to go through some questions that you can ask that help you get to the more the meaning of a passage. And so in this one, uh, this is the questions I would ask. I've got, I got a handful of them here, but after this, I have no more to preach, I don't think. So asking observant questions can lead to the real meaning of a passage. It's number one, are the only parts of the body mentioned, the only ones Jesus is really addressing? So even if you didn't read any of the other verses, so like, like is, you know, is that the only thing? Because he only talked about hands, foot, and eyes. Is that the only thing that I cause problems with? So obviously that question doesn't lead you to a conclusion necessarily, but it helps you come to the place of why is that missing? If Jesus is really telling us to do that, why is it missing? Is it reasonable to suggest, so number two, that if I were to remove any sinning part in my body, permanently preventing me from outward sin, that I could be free morally too? That would deal with all the moral aspects of it? Because now you have a whole new layer of, I can't. I might have just gotten done with the outward side, but I still got all the moral pieces to this that are still connected to me. Jesus, why didn't He talk about that part of it too? Is the only real dilemma with sin a matter of what we do? Number four, is Jesus talking about a one time offense or more? How many times? Because obviously that question has to be answered because what if I'm a little bit premature in getting the job done? Wow, I could have kept that for a little bit longer. And it, it seems foolish, but those are questions that you would have to ask yourself. If this is real, these have to be, you have to have some answers to these. Number five, is this about big sins or just little ones? Number six, if Jesus really expected us to do this, why doesn't he give us more details, and why doesn't the Bible say more about it? Number seven: why would he instruct why would his instruction be so far from the original context? If that's what he wanted, why did he get so far from the original context? Number eight, why is this so different from everything else that's taught in the Bible? Number nine, what does dismemberment have to do with those who are great in heaven, right? What does that have to do with? And in that question, you'd have to ask yourself, is it the ones who have the least of their body left or the ones who still have the most left? And I only give the absurdity of it because those are the, I would say, when people start taking the Bible out of of context, that's what they deserve to go back to them. Just that. It's like, well, what do you think about this? Yeah, that's absurd. Number 10. Wouldn't dismemberment permanently stop us from being able to carry out the will of God in other ways? So those same hands that I just lost are the same ones I'm not going to be able to serve God with. Now, when I ask those questions, the reason I want to ask those questions is because I want to ask myself, does my original thought, now there are definitely places in the Bible that you have to take a little bit more time with. Jesus must have literally meant that. Man, in this case, he's not talking about physical dismemberment, but in other cases, he might be talking about something that's just as difficult to comprehend and put into life. And we're like, I'm not sure if I want to do that. And what I would say is when you ask the right questions and you go to the right passages in the Bible, you'll come to a conclusion of sometimes Jesus' instructions were severe, and sometimes they, they looked more severe than what they were. But here's what I would say. When it comes to spiritual dealing with bringing to death the deeds of the body, when it comes to that, that's as violent as it is to do the physical act because you're doing something inwardly that brings you to the place of complete and total humility and surrender to God. And there's something about when you're getting to the place of real surrender and real humility of God, you get to see things about yourself that aren't beautiful and wonderful. But the heart work of Christ, the heart work of Christ is to make you whole and pure. And that's not to leave the impure thing there and then give you this new status in life. It's to completely recover you, both mentally, spiritually, and by His own judgment. And why I love these verses like this, because when I start looking in the context, I'm like, man, this is powerful. Powerful. In the Spirit, I can have every part of my life readjusted. In the Spirit, the old James is dead. And that reminds me of so many other verses. I'm dead with Christ, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. That tells me, no matter what kind of a report somebody else says, or if they're not living in victory, that I can keep going back to the Word of God and find victory for myself. Because most of us, that's all we want. You know, when I was A young father, I remember people coming to me about my kids and just telling me about, you just wait and you'll see. like, they're already kind of lining me up for failure and I don't understand why. As if it were like this was your failure and you know everybody else is going to do it right along with you. And so I would say this. This is why I love the students of the Word of God. I love this church. Because as you get into the Word of God and you let the Lord have His way into your life, stemming through it, not just understanding doctrine, but understanding the grace of God behind that doctrine to live a complete and total testimony for the Lord, you do nothing but create inspiration for the people of God. For the people of God. And I want to just encourage you, stay the course. Stay the course no matter how hard it is. And there will be rejection down the road. There will be people who don't want you to live that life, but just do it anyway. And there's times when you must have to make a flat stand. And I love this because a brother said to me the other day, he was just saying to me, uh, somebody he was talking to, and he was saying this, and he said, but the Word of God says, the Word of God says, that's where we need to go. What does the Word of God say when our conversations continue on? Amen? Okay. Well, I want to give an opportunity for you guys to respond to the Lord, but I think the best one I could do is challenge you for the week As I had shared before, um, there's 1189 chapters in the Bible. If you read six chapters, six about six chapters a day, which is about forty to forty-five minutes roughly, depending on the book you're in, right? You've read through the Bible in six months. I want to challenge you to do it. I want to challenge our church to read through the Bible in six months. And one way you could do it is break it up through the day. Do 15 minutes uh, or 20 minutes for one part of the day and do 20 minutes for the other. And I want to challenge you to pray because we're going to go on to prayer here in a little while. We're going to be going from the Word of God to prayer. And I love the place of prayer. And I just want to say with all my heart, when you know the Word, man, I'm telling you. You've got to pray the promises of God in the Spirit of the Lord. And God brings down those promises in powerful ways, and He makes you so certain that He's going to make it happen. And I love praying with the Word of God right there by my side. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. When you get down to pray, don't just pray what's on your mind. Look for a verse. Look for a promise that attached to that thing. And I felt like God spoke something to me a few months I'd like to share with you as we close. And it's this. You can't pray and make the will of God something other than it is. But when you discover what the will of God actually is, then you pray every promise that's in this book that lights up the will of God for your life and for somebody else. And you've got clear road. You scripturally have clear road to pray the promises that are connected to the will of God. That's why I believe it says in John, He says if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us and we have what we've asked for. God's giving us a certain sense of guarantee when we get into the court, in His court, and we do it His way, we get a sense of guarantee that nobody else does. And that's why I started with the Word of God because if we can get here and we can really get down in, busy in the Word of God, and then pray the Word of God into those things. And here's the other thing. Then the discernment comes, too, because you realize that, Jesus, you said this, and this is what they're doing. Lord, I'm going to pray that they come in alignment with what you commanded, and then we'll see that... Yep, it just dropped in here. Maybe you won't get that on the recording, but anyway. Then they'll do what you want. So you discern the will of God for somebody else's life, and you pray. And the only way you discern it is, is the Holy Spirit highlights the Word of God as it connects to them. And then you pray those verses. You pray it. Sometimes we sympathize the sufferings. And I felt the Holy Spirit at times say, The suffering is a part of what I've intended to get them to where I want them to be at. Pray that they surrender. And then I will let you pray about the suffering. (laughs) Right? Pray about the surrender first and then the suffering. Because that's God's way. Not my way, but His way. Anyway, before I get to preaching a second message, the second service will be in two hours. We'll be preaching again. Fight the neighborhood. Amen. Well, I want to pray and I want to invite you to come to the altar if the Lord has brought a conviction to your spirit. Commit to Him something that He wants for you. You know, I'm not going to push or anything like that. I want you just to commit as the Lord is just touching your heart. And as uh, our worship team comes up to sing. Why don't don't I have the worship team come up, and I'm going to pray over you. We're going to continue to worship and give you that opportunity. We don't make a final close because God doesn't always close at the time that our church closes. Father, thank you for your presence, Lord. And, God, I want to thank you, Lord, for everybody in this place that utilizes and already goes to work living in this manner, Lord, conducting themselves as somebody who will rightly divide the word of truth Lord, Your Word is so important to us. It's so important that not one jot, not one tittle, not one period, God, we want to put out of place. And we certainly don't want to misrepresent anything that You've said. Lord, we love how You've said it and what You meant it to be, God. And I want to pray that, Lord, You would help us cherish today and throughout this week. Help us to cherish with all of our heart everything that You have said, Jesus. Make us better, make us better at searching your word and doing it with such carefulness as to never miss what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And God, I'm going to give you thanks, Lord, for where we are right now. And I give you praise for where we're going in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.